Good afternoon and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm WFIU News Director Will Murphy, sitting in this afternoon for Bob Zaltzberg. And today the uh, topic under discussion in very broad terms is education and we have two very well-informed guests on that topic in the studio. Terry uh, Spradlin, who is with the Center for Education and uh, Evaluation Policy. Did I get that? Very I, close. Pretty, pretty close. I inverted them. I always do. <laughs> Everybody does. That's it's okay. C-E-E-P. Exactly. Keep. keep. Right. And uh, also with us uh, this afternoon is Jonathan Plucker, who's the director of the uh, center. If you'd like to uh, join us this afternoon and offer comments and questions, certainly education is an issue on the minds of many, especially with the legislature in session right now. Feel free to give us a call and join in. The number is 855-0811. That's the number in Bloomington. Toll free, you can call 877-285-9348 if you're calling from Columbus or Terre Haute or Indianapolis or Kokomo or one of our other communities. And if you'd like to drop a, an email question or comment, you can do that too. And the address is noon at indiana.edu. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you're you. Welcome. Thank you. Now, let's uh, just start off with a little bit of background about the Center for Evaluation and Education <laughs> Policy. And uh, it makes sense that, Jonathan, you'd start us off on that. What does the center do? How long has it been around? And uh, what's your sort of mission? Oh, thank you. It's, um, uh, we're about three and a half years old now. Uh, we're a university-based, nonpartisan um, policy center. Uh, there aren't many university-based policy centers anymore, and there aren't a ton of nonpartisan policy centers. So we sort of fill a very unique niche in, in, in both the state conversation and then the national conversation. Um, and our mission is, uh, well, pretty much what the title says, uh, is to do um, provide evaluation services, um, uh, Primarily in education, um, but uh, we uh, lots of uh, community-based evaluation, lots of healthcare education evaluation. Um, I think the national conversation, at least in this country and in many other countries now, is that um, evalu- uh, evaluating things, especially public policy things, um, it provides us with really useful information. And that's not necessarily been the attitude in the past few decades. So um, there's lots of really interesting ideas that people have out there, we put them into place, and then it's really our job to come in and uh, try to see if they work and find out ways to help them work better. Now, I, I know that I've gotten releases from the center on, on uh, occasion about, it seems to me, one of the most recent was about uh, Hoosier's attitude toward mm-hmm. uh, education. How do you pick the topics that you, that you uh, evaluate and examine? Well, on the policy side, um, you're you're referring to our annual public opinion poll. Um, uh, And, you know, it's uh, keeping our ear to the ground primarily. Um, We try to push the conversation a little bit, and I'll let Terry uh, talk about that in one second. But uh, for the public policy poll, uh, we saw lots of other states doing it, lots of other state policy – lots of policymakers in other states said, boy, this, this, this information is so incredibly helpful to us. And yet we'd go to hearings in our own state house and people and have in, and we would hear people say, well, uh, you know, full day kindergarten, no one wants it. And we're sitting there going, how would you possibly know that? And then they'd say, well, my neighbor said that, you know, no one actually wants it. And we thought, you know, it wouldn't be hard for us to go out and do something like this. And so um, we pick most of them, but we try to sort of guess what the hot topics are going to be too. And um, I, I'll actually defer to Terry to talk a little bit about some more about that. Yeah, absolutely. We spent a lot of time at the State House following education issues. Uh, we were there just this past Wednesday attending the Senate Education and Career Development Committee following the uh, discussion on the full-day kindergarten bill. But I also represent the center at most of the uh, State Board of Education meetings on a monthly basis and the Education Roundtable meetings. So we are in direct contact with policymakers and state education leaders and the representatives of the statewide education association. So we're regularly dialoguing with those leaders and uh, tracking those significant education issues. And before we issued, uh, actually before we even finalized the questions for the 2006 public opinion survey, we gave draft questions to many of those key stakeholders and said, are these questions appropriate? Are we tracking, asking questions about the most significant issues. And so we had 31 questions on this year's survey uh, covering a number of issues, including full-day kindergarten, uh, school funding, choice and charter schools and public education, uh, 
attitudes and perceptions about school accountability, how No Child Left Behind is impacting public education and our own state's accountability system, PL221. And I know some of these issues are issues you, you want to talk about. So, And then generally, we always ask questions about overall attitudes and perceptions about the quality of schools in Indiana and the quality of schools in the uh, respondents' own community. And we always see it's much like what we find in Congress. The respondents react favorably in general about the quality of schools, but then when you ask them about the quality of their their schools in their own community, they react even more favorably. Um, so in Indiana, citizens generally do view public education favorably, uh, but they have some very strong opinions about some of those key issues that we will talk about today. Okay. How many folks on staff, uh, faculty and staff uh, at the center? That's a good question. Um, we've been growing quite a bit the last few years. I think by the end of this fiscal year, so by the end of June, in terms of uh, full-time positions, you know, graduate students would count as a half-time position. In terms of full-time positions, collapsing everything down, uh, we'll be in the 40 to 50 range. Um, we really go out of our way to make sure we're providing lots of opportunity for students. We're going to have our first ice, uh, high school intern starting the end of this month from Bloomington South. Um, we're working with big brothers and big sisters. Uh, this is going to be the second summer that we have a middle school internship program, and then we try to involve as many undergraduate and graduate students as we possibly can. I think last year, the final count, last fiscal year, was 88 students. So I think we are providing a lot of great opportunities for students, too, to learn learn about this stuff. Okay. What are some of the uh, uh, hot issues uh, that you're looking at right now? I mean, clearly, for example, in the legislature, full-day kindergarten is the thing you're talking up uh, in the committee uh, this week. Um, What's your role in a discussion of a topic like that? Well, you know, it really varies. Um, when we are interacting with federal policymakers, it's much more of a, hey, can you write me a memo for Senator so-and-so? This would come from... Uh, in Indiana, one of the two senator staffers, they'd say, you know, the senator is really interested in topic X. He has a little bit of information. Could you just write us up a four or five page memo on what the research really says about this? Um, we do that at the state level increasingly too. At the state level, it's usually, I want to introduce this bill. Can you look it over for me? What would the research suggest in terms of changing it? Um, uh, so that 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 piece of it is usually people coming to us and saying, can you give us some behind-the-scenes advice, um, which we're, we're certainly happy to do, um, although it's happening so often now, it's taking a lot of our time. Uh, and then the other part is just to make ourselves available for things like hearings, presentations to groups like the Education Roundtable and the State, State Board of Education. We also issue on a monthly basis what we call our Education Policy Brief Series. And so we'll look ahead and try to predict what those key topics will be that the legislature or the State Board of Education or the Education Roundtable will discuss. And we'll try to collect all of the national research on what the research says about the topic. Then we'll collect data specific to the topic for Indiana. And then we'll look at what best practices say about the particular topic. And we'll issue the policy brief with recommendations about how the state should respond to the topic if there's a critical need that needs to be addressed. Uh, just last uh, last month, we issued a brief on teacher recruitment and retention. Here in Indiana, we've been pretty fortunate, uh, unlike other states in the West that have a severe teacher shortage. Here in Indiana, we've been somewhat fortunate mm-hmm. that our universities are still producing a surplus, really, of elementary education teachers. But we're having some critical needs start to surface in, our, in Indiana that we need more secondary teachers in math and science Uh, more world language teachers, and we also need more teachers of special education. And we have many teachers nearing the age of retirement. We have uh, one-third of our teacher workforce will be eligible to retire within five years with the rule of 85 if they've uh, had 30 years of service and reached the age of 55. So one-third of our workforce would be eligible to retire. That's a significant concern. And so we need to be ready to respond to that issue. So our policy brief examined all of these topics and made some very concrete recommendations about how the legislature could be forward-thinking to try to be ready to anticipate and make sure we have an adequate supply of highly qualified teachers. So that is one example. So on a monthly basis, um, Probably next week we will be issuing a policy brief on Indiana's school funding formula. As we talked about, this is a budget session. The legislature every two years adopts a state budget uh, for Indiana, and the primary component of the state budget is the school funding formula. Uh, Over 
including the uh, control for property taxes. They uh, predict how much property taxes can increase and go to public education. The combination, uh, we're probably talking uh, $10 billion for the next two years for for public education. So it's clearly a significant proportion of the uh, state budget. So our policy brief that we're issuing next week will be regarding one of the components uh, the funding formula. Uh, you know, there's a joke that the only the four people that understand the uh, school funding formula should not ride on the same airplane, or we're in a, <laughs> a, a world of trouble. Uh, we don't want to lose that expertise. Um, it's a very complex funding mechanism for our state, and one of the mechanisms is called the complexity index. And the complexity index is if a school corporation has a high percentage, a higher percentage, of children at risk um, for socioeconomic factors. If they have uh, a high percentage of children in poverty, high percentage of children with a, a single parent, a uh, high percentage of uh, adults in the community without a high school diploma. The formula, this complexity in- index, is supposed to generate additional dollars uh, for those school corporations. And uh, so very p- few people understand what the complexity index is, how it works. And so our policy brief that we issue next week will examine and help inform uh, policymakers. So that's really what I see our, one of our general roles is helping inform policymakers and state education leaders about what the research says, um, and then that, that hopefully will help influence and shape public policy. And I want to come back to uh, both the general funding formula and the complexity formula, uh, complexity index rather, but I want to back up just a little bit and ask about is, is the scope of your mandate uh, K through 12, is it P through 16, uh, does it include higher education? It does. Um, traditionally, especially university-based um, centers, there, there are uh, – uh, we could talk for hours about all the advantages of being, a, uh, being part of a university-based um, center. There are many and I think many of them are very, very obvious. Uh, one of the downsides is that anything we do on higher education, people tend to question automatically, well, are they doing this to support just IU? Um, uh, we are uh, financially independent. We pay our own lease. We we cover all of those costs. Um, but in, in the mind of a policy uh, maker, it does sort of hint at a conflict of interest. And I mean, I can totally understand that. Um, we, we focused more on P16 issues and uh, especially these, you know, uh, any policies that can smooth transitions between those different levels. And it's impossible to talk about higher education now and not talk about high school preparation. It's impossible to talk about high school preparation and dropout issues and graduation rates without talking about about middle school and late elementary issues. Um, as we've seen in the state for many years now, it's impossible to talk about education in general without talking about early childhood education, full-day kindergarten, preschool now. Um, um, so I, yeah, the, the center really does sort of take a broad view there. And that's why things like health education also fit extremely well. Um, there are a lot of people who are starting to realize that you know student health and student performance are not completely different topics. Huh, you, you think? Yeah, really, huh? And uh, you know, things like student obesity, the lack of physical education, the lack of physical exercise in general outside of school, nutrition, schools. You know, a lot of students eat at least one or two of their meals every day at school, and so um, we've started to, to work in that area a lot more too. So yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty broad mandate, which is why we're so busy. <laughs> I want to remind our listeners who may have just joined us that we're speaking this afternoon with uh, two representatives from the Center for Evaluation and Education Policy here at IU. Jonathan Plucker is the director. And Terry Spradlin, what is your official title? I don't think we got to that. Sure. It's Associate Director for Education Policy. Thank you very much. You're welcome. If you'd like to join in uh, the conversation here, if you have a comment or question about education, it seems uh, as the legislature's in session, just about everybody does. (laughs) Uh, The number to call here in Bloomington is 855-0811. Toll free outside the Bloomington area, 877 285-9348 and online if you'd like to drop an email the address is noon at indiana.edu now you referenced uh, in comments just a moment ago the uh, funding formula and the complexity index Um, but first let's talk about uh, what the governor has identified as his number one priority for the legislative session which is full day kindergarten what does uh, what does your information tell us well, it passed out of the uh, the governor's version, uh, sponsored by Senator Lubbers. Uh, it's uh, Senate Bill five seventy six, I believe. 
567. I wrote it down backwards. 567 um, passed out of the Senate Education Committee yesterday. Uh, eight to two. Um, uh, all four Democrats voted for it. And then four Republicans for it and two Republicans against. Um, the House passed their version. Uh, and I guess the big difference between the House version, which was I guess two or three, three Wednesdays ago, um, is that the House version uh, essentially seeks to implement full-day kindergarten immediately next fall. Uh, and the governor's version phases it in over a three-year a three-year period. Um, so there's definitely going to be a conference committee on it. Um, I mean, we're getting closer. Um, we've been talking about full-day kindergarten in this state for so long that we went from being probably national leaders to being way behind most other people in many other countries now. Um, quite frankly, and I, I mean this only half-jokingly, I'd like to see us pass it just so we can stop asking full-day kindergarten questions on our public opinion poll because <laughs> it takes up a lot of space every year. Um, How long and, have we been talking about it? I mean, I remember it in the O'Bannon and Kernan administration. Well, you're right. Seven years. Yeah. Uh, well, Governor O'Bannon, when he ran for election in 1996, that was on his platform, and so he did push forward in '97. Probably the strongest push um, during his first term was in 1999, and then uh, and then more recently, Governor Kernan pushed it uh, pushed forward in 2004, and probably in '99 there was still not uh, overwhelming support both from a, uh, an education policy standpoint about the benefits. There were still not general recognition and consensus that there was clear benefit, but also from the financial standpoint. 2004, totally different situation. We were just coming out of the, the economic recession. We were uh, dealing with a budget deficit for the state of Indiana. We clearly didn't have the money to pay for it in 2004 when Governor Kernan pushed for it. So it's been an ongoing Debate, but I will say that the legislature seems more inclined from an education benefit standpoint that there seems to be a greater or a growing consensus about the academic benefits. There is still some debate, and they asked Jonathan this question in the committee what are the long term benefits? And everyone seems to, to agree the benefits are clear between full day and half day during the kindergarten year, but they asked Jonathan, well, what, what about in second, third, fourth grade, and so on? What are the sustained benefits for full-day kindergarten? Yeah, and uh, you know that's a really tough question, and, and this this is one this is one aspect that's really hard in policy work. Is that uh, if I were speaking to an academic audience, I could give a nice detailed half-hour explanation of why I think the research says what it says. You know, I had sixty seconds, and uh, they don't uh, tolerate very pensive, detailed responses. And um, you know, and uh, I knew that it I knew that the question was coming because. Um, as we joked about during the hearing, uh, the governor's aide and one of the senators who ended up voting against it were arguing with each other right before I spoke and they each quoted me. <laughs> and uh, there is no worse feeling in the world to see, oh my God, they're both talking about me and they're yelling at each other. Um, so then I had to get up and talk about it, which was a little bit awkward. But, you know, uh, in the state of Indiana, for some reason, the conventional wisdom about a year ago suddenly became uh, there's no research that shows long-term benefits of full-day kindergarten and that, in fact, the conventional wisdom became even stronger than that and it was that there – and it was that the research shows that the, that the benefits disappear over time. Um, that's not really what the research says. One, we don't have many long-term studies, so we don't really know. And those that we do have generally show long-term benefits through third or fourth grade. They don't show farther than that because the studies don't go any longer than that. Um, yeah, there are one or two that seem to have disappearing effects, but we think that's probably a research design issue. Um, uh, I mean, you know, um, so much of preschool research shows lifetime benefits through adulthood, throughout the entire lifespan for kids who attend um, you know, high-quality preschool programs versus those that don't. Um, Full-day kindergarten, if it doesn't show long-term effects, would be the, pretty much the only early childhood intervention that doesn't. So I sort of feel like the onus is on people who say it doesn't work to show us studies that really, really say that. I, I really don't see research that actually says that. I think we need better research to find out exactly what the benefits are. But I'm starting to become convinced uh, that it's really a research issue and that – I mean, there, I mean – 
obviously, if an extra half year of school at the age of five, six, or seven doesn't really help you, why do we have kindergarten in the first place? Um, so It seems to me it might be worth noting for people like me. I, I was talking to a kindergarten uh, teacher the other day for a story, and she was pointing out that Kindergarten means something very different now than it did when I was growing oh, up. When I, when I was growing up, it meant milk, graham crackers, and a little <laughs> sleepy mat. Right. Um, and now she was talking about teaching arithmetic concepts, pre-algebra kind of stuff, pairing and that sort of stuff. Very different situation than, than – Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I, uh, someone yesterday, uh, I'm sorry, on Wednesday uh, testified, and I knew that there were a lot of academic standards for kindergarten, but someone said 98. Right. Uh, I mean, try to try to get to 98 academic standards for every kid in your class as a kindergarten teacher. If you have them for, you know, three, three and a half hours a day, that's not all instructional time. Um, uh, and I think Dr. Reed said it uh, best, the uh, state superintendent. Um, that's literally impossible. That's impossible. We, we've set up an impossible scenario for teachers. And kindergarten has become much more academic. Preschools have become much more academic. Having the full day really opens up the playing field for teachers to actually teach to these standards. It's just that's so hard to do in a half-day situation. Can we speak to the uh, – and we probably should move on to other topics as well. But this is one that obviously is galvanizing a lot of attention mm-hmm. as the legislature is debating this big-ticket item. Um, Different districts handle this differently. Some have half days, some day full days, some day it's op- some it's some it's optional. How do you make it all uniforms? And and, and how, there's this question of affordability for many districts. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think we, uh, but roughly sixty percent of the districts now offer some sort of full day kindergarten option. For many, it's a paid option. Um, Meaning paid for by the district. Paid for by parents. parents. Um, It's considered legally an add-on program to the regular curriculum, so uh, school districts can charge parents for it. Um, You know, uh, schools uh, over the years have decided that they're not going to wait. Some school districts have decided that they're not going to wait for the state government to catch up um, to where everybody else is in uh, the country with full-day kindergarten. And so they found very creative ways to fund it. They've dipped into their Title I dollars, which is uh, f- uh, federal money. Um, they've uh, redistributed budgets. They've found new space. Um, but not all of them have done that. Uh, but we need to keep in mind that kindergarten isn't mandatory in the state of Indiana. And there's no move to make it mandatory Either. So even this new bill, if it were to pass tomorrow and be fully funded, it would be optional full-day kindergarten. People would still have the option for half-day kindergarten and parents would still have the option not to send their kids to kindergarten at all, which is their option in Indiana. One key uh, point to make is, yes, it will be optional for parents, but once fully implemented, if this bill passes this year, in three years, every school district must offer it. So it's mandatory that school districts offer it and provide the opportunity to parents, but parents will still, as Jonathan mentioned, still have the option to enroll their child in half-day, full-day or in no kindergarten at all because the uh, compulsory attendance age in Indiana is age 7. But once that is fully implemented and every school district has to offer it, it becomes mandatory for them, then they will no longer be eligible or they can no longer legally charge parents a fee for kindergarten. That becomes um, uh, illegal to do. Okay. Now, there's this discrepancy between the House and Senate version at this point. Um, based on what you've seen, the numbers you've looked at, tentative though they may be through, say, out to the third or fourth grade, what would you like to see as a sort of compromise uh, committee bill and what would be the price tag? Well, you know, the price tag question, uh, Terry and I have talked about this a lot lately. Uh, three years ago, uh, under Governor Kern, the price tag was about $120 million, 100 to $120 million. Um, the estimates this time around, when the governor over the summer first indicated that this was going to be a huge priority for him, we didn't. We I don't think we yet knew that it was going to be his top his top priority. Um, the the estimates started at around two hundred million, and uh, within months we were hearing three hundred million, three hundred and fifty million, four hundred million, and uh, it's really hard to get a grip on what the actual costs would be. I think we'll actually have a better idea of what they will be if we use the approach that the governor and many other people. Have 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 seem seem to be favoring, which is to you know phase it in over a three year period. Um, you know, it's it's uh, some schools are going to need more classroom space. Some are going to need more teachers. Some aren't. Some are going to need to do a lot more professional development with their half day teachers who suddenly find, wow, I've got all this time. I can do new and different things. 
help me learn how to do that. Um, others aren't going to need to do that. Um, uh, some people are already paying for it out of their own funds. So that money gets moved somewhere else and gets freed up. So do you count that for or against full-day kindergarten? And it just becomes incredibly, incredibly complex. I, um, I think what we'll definitely see uh, – I think we will see full-day kindergarten. And I think it will be phased in at least over two years. I don't know if it'll be three in the end. Um, you know, my, my concern with phasing it in, in, in over three years is that if the economy um, slides at all, then a lot of the money they're counting on to do it by the end of that third year is going to be gone. And full-day kindergarten would be an obvious sacrificial lamb. I'm kind of worried about that. So, um, But I think it's going to pass. I think it's going to be uh, closer than people think. And I think the conference committee is going to be very entertaining as they usually are. Um, but this time around, all the major players on both sides of the aisle are really in favor of this. We've never really had that condition before, plus an anticipated budget surplus. And so I, I, think, I think that we will see it. And I think one reason that we're going to see it primarily is that there's enough money in the budget forecasts this next time around that schools in general are, are, will probably see a nice bump to the general fund of 3 to 4 percent. Um, so they'll get full-day kindergarten on top of that. And uh, politically, I think that's a really important consideration. Okay. We have so much to uh, talk about in this hour. <laughs> We're more than halfway through the show already. The time has just flown and we've just made it through kindergarten. We have uh, 12 <laughs> more grades to go, maybe 16 in some schools. Yeah, 16, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we will get to those in just a moment. We need to take a break. We have emails already in. If you want to join us, uh, the number to call is 877-285-9348. That's a toll-free number outside the Bloomington area. In Bloomington, 855-0811. And you can drop an email. The address is noon at indiana.edu. Our guests this afternoon are Jonathan Plucker and Terry Spradlin with IU's Center for Evaluation and Education Policy. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations, Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. A Prairie Home Companions Garrison Keeler is coming to the IU Auditorium on Wednesday, February 21st. WFIU will host a reception at the Neil Marshall Black Culture Center at 6.30, a chance to enjoy desserts from Limestone Grill, wine from the Oliver Winery, and to say hello to Garrison. Tickets include the reception as well as preferred seating at the performance. Reception-only tickets are also available to WFIU members. Deadline to order is Wednesday, February 14th. More information at WFIU.org or at 812-855-1357. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Will Murphy, the news director here at WFIU, sitting in for uh, Bob Zaltzberg of the Herald Times and Mary Catherine Carmichael. They'll be back here next week. We have two guests in the studio, both from the... Center for Evaluation and Education Policy at IU. Jonathan Plucker is the director, and Terry Spradlin is associate director. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. We're going to move right to the emails because usually the listeners uh, ask more intelligent and informed questions than I do. (laughs) This listener wants you to speak to the average child's parents about the motivational agenda for keeping children from laziness and disinterest and where a parent can go to get information that will alleviate the bored child at school. I don't know, Terry. Your kids kind of look bored to me when I see that. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if you're the best parent. Is that something you address in your mandate? I mean, we talk a lot about public policy, but clearly kids are in a school for 
six, eight, however few many hours, hours a day. Right. And the rest of it is in a different environment. So do you address uh, sort of the ramifications of home life and parent involvement? I mean, I, I, I can speak briefly to that if I take off my center hat and put on my educational psychologist hat. Um, you know, and the things, that, the things that I normally talk to parents about when we're talking about, um, I like to think of it as boredom-proofing kids, um, uh, helping them be more creative, helping them develop better study habits. If I had to tell parents, I give parents one bit of advice and one only, it would be uh, you are the most important role model. And if uh, you come home after work and sit down and turn on the TV and watch the TV and never pick up a book or never go exercise or never go to a museum, um, you know, after 18 years of your kids watching that, those are the habits that they're going to have developed too. Um, and, and, you know, and it's not easy to be, to be a grown-up. I think everyone here knows that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, when you're a parent especially, I think you always need to keep that in the back of your mind. That's the part of parenting that quite frankly challenges me the most is, boy, you know, I would really like to just veg out and watch TV here. But I've got two little kids who are watching me. I can't you know, you have, to, you have to be careful about those sorts of things. We did issue a policy brief in 2005 about the rate of childhood obesity in Indiana. We looked at the rates for childhood obesity and adolescent obesity. The research is clear. If you have a, an adolescent that's obese, their likelihood of being obese as a parent or as an adult is just you know, astronomical. They're, they will be obese essentially if they're overweight as a teenager. And so that has severe consequences for our society, for uh, for public programs, you know, our, our rate of Medicaid expenditures in the state continue to escalate. A big factor is obesity. That uh, the healthcare cost uh, associated with uh, obesity issues is significant, um, and children have psychological issues when they're overweight, um, depression, uh, poor attendance, and that has many consequences. So, we. You know, we have a fast food lifestyle in our society today and that has consequences. So we as parents do have a responsibility to be more active, more engaged, make good decisions for our children about what they eat, uh, how often they exercise, uh, turning off the TV, turning off the Xbox. And yes, it's a challenge for me too with a teenager <laughs> to make sure there's a proper balance. But it's a struggle, but it's one we have to, uh, to have to accept and succeed at. And I'd also say, uh, you know, uh, Indiana's smoking rates are just a national embarrassment. We're one of the highest smoking states. And uh, most groups, most demographic groups across the country, Indiana is pretty much the same. We see those rates dropping except for young girls, um, teenage girls. And I think we certainly see that at the college level too. Just casual smoking among young women is skyrocketing. And so I'm, I'm worried we're going to start to see the average rates go up in a few years again which hasn't happened for some time. Okay. We have uh, a couple of more. E Actually, we have three or four more emails, and this one ties into what we've just been discussing. I'd like to know what can be done about the quality of food in the schools. The food is almost all prepackaged, frozen, and then fried. Even pita butter sandwiches are prepackaged. Uh, there have been improvements by adding fresh food, but the children must choose between fresh food or the juice boxes, which nearly always went out. The amount of sugar in a typical elementary student's lunch is ridiculous. The meals rarely, if ever, contain whole grains, despite widespread understanding of its nutritional importance. I've heard the argument that kids won't eat the food if it's good for them. I know this isn't true. What is happening is that we are teaching children to eat unhealthy food and telling them by serving it that it is healthy. Corn dogs and Pop-Tarts have been served as breakfast items. This is unacceptable. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. You is know, it the, as prevalent as they say or are things changing? Things are changing a bit. Yeah. The legislature just passed a law, I think it was last year, yep. to uh, eliminate vending machines from elementary schools and control uh, the products that are available in vending machines in middle and high school so that there's an equal balance of healthy uh, foods available and uh, also controlling the, the quantity and the serving size of those uh, unhealthy food items. And so we're making progress and federal law requires that every school have a, a committee looking at health and nutrition issues. And so because of the research about obesity, people are taking action. We're seeing action more uh, cohesively at the state level, at the local level. And I, start, I think we're starting to see some changes in trends. And slowly. So slowly. It's yeah. a positive change, and, but we have a lot more work to do, no doubt about and, it. Uh, Senator Luger has been a national leader working with the Department of Agriculture to try to pilot test programs to get more vegetables and get healthier foods in. So he's definitely someone to um, contact uh, if, if someone is interested in more information about that. Okay. We have a caller on the line. Let's go to Elisa. Hello? 
Hello. Um, my question also has to do with um, health problems and obesity, but a slightly different um, angle. Um, what does your organization do to um, work with communities to extend sidewalks in um, neighborhoods so that children can be more healthy simply by walking to school rather than riding a bus or having to be transported? Um, I'm sure it could only help with the health of the overall family, but for children especially, it would be really great if more schools were um, pedestrian-friendly. That's a good question. Uh, that is a very good question. Um, Why isn't the CEEP putting in more sidewalks? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I have to see if we can hire, 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 hire more people who know how to do, who know how to do that. I, uh, the caller's yeah, point is a very... the sidewalks once they're in, too, because it's... <laughs> amazing how many sidewalks I know are buried there under the snow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I, think it, I think it is worth noting that a town like Bloomington has done a pretty good job of extending sidewalks, uh, changing the building codes that sidewalks have to be put in. I mean, there are lots of neighborhoods. Um, I mean, I live on the east side of town. Uh, it's about a 40-minute walk. I've done it before, but it's treacherous because I have to cross the College Mall Road and 3rd Street intersection. Um, you know, there are some parts of our town that just aren't very pedestrian friendly. Not something we work on, though. But, but yeah. is, there, is there data to suggest about uh, a family or a child's connection to a community, uh, hmm. a neighborhood, a question. as opposed to remember how much furor there was when they were reconfiguring the elementary schools here in Bloomington. And folks were furious that they were taking folks from north and shipping them to Evansville and people from the south side of town and moving them to Indy. I'm exaggerating, but yeah. but uh, removing them from their neighborhoods. Uh, you know, um, America and uh, Indiana is no exception from other states. I mean, we, we are largely still a home rule state as far as education goes, uh, um, a home rule society, I should say. Um, uh, people like the idea of having their kids walk to their community school, um, you know, but with suburban sprawl and things like that, that's in some places becoming a thing of the past, unfortunately. And um, fortunately, as Terry pointed out at the very beginning in our public opinion poll, people still do really seem invested in their local public schools. That's something I wonder if that's going to change as we become more spread out. And um, I mean, it, I, I don't know what percentage of kids walk to school, to public and private schools in Bloomington. I'm, I'm sure it's a heck of a lot smaller than it used to be. And that, that's probably not a good thing. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for the call. We appreciate it. Thank you. And maybe folks in the city are listening and uh, are monitoring and modifying <laughs> their, their sidewalk plans. Um, I wanted to speak a little bit about charter schools because that was a hot political topic not too long ago. And I saw I – maybe, maybe I dreamed this, but it seems to me this session I saw a discussion of uh, online charter schools, which strikes me as just a whole another animal that takes education in a radically different direction. Um, uh, we would agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, uh, they're generally called virtual charter schools and they are a completely different animal. Um, and Ball State just approved uh, the state's first two charters for online virtual charter schools. Um, but, but let me back up a little bit first and just talk about charters in general. Um, there was a major charter bill heard Wednesday that passed on a party line vote, although uh, some of the more controversial pieces were, were, were stripped out of it um, at the Senate on Wednesday. Um, you know, uh, charters are one of those things where um, people have a knee-jerk reaction about them, but when you learn more about them, uh, people generally calm down a little bit and go, well, actually, this isn't that bad. And um, Indiana has a, um, a pretty moderate charter law. Um, it's, How many I, charter schools are there now? Actually, I have that right here in front of me. Um, Terry, Terry, I believe it's 36, 36 this school year. I think it's a little bit more. I think maybe 39 this year. But okay. I, in the in in the upper 30s. in the thirties, uh, yeah, um, uh, with, and we see about four or five new charters a year, um, and I, it's worth noting that um, uh, most of those charters are not charters created by school districts. And uh, I think if the charter uh, movement in Indiana is going to grow, that's where the schools are going to grow. Um, uh, we're, we're, excuse me. We're going to see charters within school districts. Um, and a lot of um, public school superintendents, including a lot of area public school superintendents, um, are starting to see charters less as a threat and more as an opportunity for innovation. And that's really what they're meant for. But unless school districts start creating them as tools for innovation, they're never going to be that. Um, 
and uh, we, we had a forum on charter schools on uh, Halloween last year, October 31st, 2006. And I was surprised uh, if we had done that even two years ago, every question from the crowd would have been fairly anti-charter. There wasn't a single anti-charter question. They were all pro-charter. Uh, you know, uh, how can the university help? What are other ways to get involved? Um, in general, the quality of the charters within Indiana, and this is the same across the entire country. Um, you know, there are there are some great public schools, tr- traditional public schools, and there are some that need to get a lot better. And there are some great charter schools, and there are some that need to get a lot better. Um, uh, the difference is being able to sort of create these niche charter schools that that really try to do something different, um, and that's where I think most of the growth is going to be. But they're not uh, disadvantageous. They're not. They don't detract from the performance or function of public school system. Well, because of changes to the law in two thousand and three, um, uh, both the state and local share of per pupil revenue. Um, for a uh, charter school is paid completely by the state. Um, and that has uh, greatly mediated the, f- the uh, fiscal impact of charter schools on the traditional public schools. Although with the, funding, with the funding formula and dollars following the student over the long term, if a district were to lose a lot of students transferring over to charter schools, uh, it would have a, a uh, fiscal impact. Exactly what the educational impact would be, um, you know, uh, school choice research in general. People claim it shows, oh, everyone gets more competitive and more innovative. Well, it sort of shows that. I mean, so we're not really sure what the impact is. I think the impact in this state has been less than in others, um, but we, we certainly hear from a lot of uh, superintendents um, who still feel a little bit threatened by charter schools and with virtual charter schools. That's a whole new ball game. I, I think uh, no matter how you feel about virtual education politically, uh, I'm a little bit shocked that Ball State has gone in this direction. We, we finally got school districts saying, you know, charters aren't that bad. Uh, but we know that uh, in general, people don't like the idea of virtual charters. It's very threatening to schools and it should be because we don't know that much about them. The research is very, very mixed. Uh, for Ball State to sort of charge ahead, actually, I'm a little bit surprised. I think it's probably bad for the charter movement in general. They disagree. but And right now it's Ball State and uh, mayor, the mayor of Indianapolis. Who else has uh, chartering authority? Um, every school district in the state. Really? Okay. Well, and also the uh, all the uh, four year yeah. institutions, IU could sponsor charter schools if the they chose not to. to. Right, Purdue, uh, Indiana State, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Okay, I didn't realize that uh, anybody could jump in. I thought that gate was closed. Oh no, hardly. Well, just a four year public university, not the private universities, could do yeah. that. Well, we have to get to school finance and we have to get to accountability before this hour is out. But I want to get to these two emails before we do, just sure. so we we're sure to cover them. Given the extraordinarily high STD situation in our state, for example, Indianapolis is statistically close to NYC and L.A., and Indiana's high teen pregnancy uh, stats, can the Policy Institute move along sexuality education that includes information about healthy protection along with the preferred abstinence promotion? We do have a a sister organization uh, not associated with IU, but the Indiana Youth Institute collects uh, annually, and they issue a a very comprehensive report on health issues uh, regarding children and youth. And they do take a very active role uh, in trying to uh, promote good research and, 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 you know, the annual report that they issue to influence decision-making and policy-making. So we have done some work with them on the evaluation side, and that's the role we would play is to help evaluate some of the uh, initiatives or programs that are implemented to address these types of concerns. Is anything along those lines in terms of uh, sex education programs on the legislative radar this session? Uh, that we've seen. You know, every so often there will be the issue about contraceptives in schools um, and whether they're permissible or not. And so every couple of years that issue resurfaces. It seems to be almost a perennial issue. Uh, yeah, actually, there, there, there is a very big issue. Uh, the, um, all of the female senators on both sides of the aisle uh, yesterday had another press conference to push for their bill for the mandatory um, HPV vaccine, the, the uh, cervical cancer um, uh, drug, which which really is a wonder drug. Um, and I believe Texas is the first state to mandate it for every middle school student. I may have some of those details wrong, but I know, I know it's been mandated. Uh, Governor Daniels just came out, I believe it was yesterday or the day before, and said that he doesn't want to go down that 
down that road. Uh, but there's still a very significant block of very important senators who think maybe we should go down that road. And it's certainly worth a broader debate. And I think that's what they're having right now. Okay. Does the Policy Institute address particular curriculum areas for Indiana's high schools, wondering if courses in renewable and alternative energies and sustainability could become core courses in our secondary schools? Um, We do not, and that's not a bad idea. (laughs) Okay. Um, Let's turn to the to the whole question of school funding uh, once again. We talked about uh, FDK and that question has been framed by many in terms of what it will take away from the rest of the things the schools do. And the other issue that comes up when you talk about school funding is the – and this seems true of every legislative session I've seen – the contradictory interests or conflicting interests between rural, urban – and suburban schools. And this gets to what you're talking about, about the money following the student. What's your recommendation in that area and what are we looking at? Well, we uh, mentioned earlier about what's available here in Indiana for this budget session. The legislature is looking at a a surplus right now of about $1.2 billion. And that's for all state state programs, not just public education, but Medicaid, corrections, any state program that they have to fund. So they have to divvy up the pie amongst all of those interests. And for K education, K through 12 education, that is a top priority, clearly, every budget session because of the school funding formula comprises such a large percentage of the state budget. Right now, the governor introduced a proposal for a 3% increase for all schools. Uh, Dr. Reed, the state superintendent, uh, in her budget proposal suggested a 4% increase. I know most of the uh, school associations uh, would like a 4% increase. But realistically, it's it's probably not possible to get a 4% increase and full-day kindergarten. So what I see happening at the end of the session will be a a funding increase of about 3% overall and then the full-day kindergarten implementation plan being uh, funded as well. That really leaves no other money for any other major education initiatives, for example, like uh, textbooks. So, And then there's this issue within the formula that every two years they have this debate in the legislature and the, the legislators uh, represent the best interest of their school corporations. They say, well, I have, uh, I have rural school districts and, and we need more money or I have suburban school districts and we are the fastest growing school districts in the state. We need more money or the urban school districts saying, well, despite stagnation in our enrollment growth or decline, in enrollment, we still have increasing costs, you know, health, health insurance, utilities, gas, you know, the cost of doing business is going up. And just because we're losing a few kids here and a few kids there, we simply can't make uh, across the board reductions to accommodate that. So we have increasing cost as well. So there are competing interests, you know, by region of the state, by type of school district that we have, and, and they all have legitimate issues. So it's trying to balance those interests, and the legislature has a juggling act, and they tend to do a pretty good job overall in meeting the needs of all school corporations in that uh, situation. That was a very diplomatic uh, assessment of the situation. <laughs> You've been around the leg- legislature too long. I was in the state house 13 years, uh, <laughs> actually. But I, what, when one looks at this question, it's very baffling for the person outside. When you've got somebody in, say, Indianapolis or Gary or wherever it might have to be, saying my school's falling apart and this follow the student formula is not helping me out at all. And there's the implication that there's a certain inequity in the educational allocation there. But you've got these folks from wealthier districts, these suburban districts, saying it's only equitable that X amount be assigned to that student. How do you, how do you resolve that? Well, with the uh, growing school districts, that's, that's correct. They do a count of kids in September. And they're funded on a calendar year basis. So when school reopens in August, they're still getting funded on the previous year's count. And since then, they've had many, many kids move into their school corporation. And when they start a new school year, they, have ten, they tend to have hundreds of new kids, which they're not getting funding for. So once they do the count and that gets ca- calculated into the calendar year payments, monthly payments, um, they're just catching up. And by the time three or four months into the new formula, they're starting to fall behind already with, with the amount per kid. Yeah, you know, and you can't ignore the, the role that property taxes and Indiana's formerly antiquated system that we're trying to modernize now or maybe scrap or maybe, you know, the, the state level, they're doing property tax replacement credits. Um, you know, until we get that figured out, it's going to be really hard to get adequate funding to everyone um, uh, just because the property tax issue tends to be a deal breaker in many other states when you actually try to fix these problems. It's, it's, it's very complex, unfortunately. But now we're talking about getting away from property tax. Is that right. a good omen for education? 
I, you know, uh, ask me after we do it. And uh, I mean, there's there's a hundred ways to do it, and there are probably fifty ways that could really hurt education, and there are probably fifty ways that could be great, or or maybe most would be in the middle somewhere. Um, uh, but it's it's just too early to look into that crystal ball. The uh, general fund right now is funded about eighty five percent at the state level, and only fifteen percent of uh, property taxes pay for the general fund under our current funding formula. That may be doable to eliminate local property tax and fund it fully at the state level. However, the real challenge will be uh, what what do we do with the local capital project funds, the mm-hmm. local debt service funds, transportation funds, etc. Those are funded locally, and if we were to move to a total state funded system. System, we're talking about a sizable income tax or sales tax increase yeah. for every citizen of the state. And uh, that's probably not that reasonable or practical in the foreseeable future. Okay. Mm-hmm. We've only got about a couple of minutes here. And I want to ask you before you folks get away and before we talk about some things you've got coming up, uh, accountability. That was the big buzzword for, for quite a while and still is to some degree with No Child Left Behind and PL221. Uh, where is that now? I mean, now the argument seems, there seems to be a backlash against that, with people saying you shouldn't teach to a test. Where are we standing in terms of the viability of NCLB? Well, with NCLB, uh, we are in about the fourth or fifth year of implementation. Uh, in 2005, when we look at schools meeting, meeting adequate yearly progress, we had about 49 percent of our schools meet adequate yearly progress, and only or 51% did not. So that's a concern because by 2014, the magical year, all of these corporations are supposed to be at 100% proficiency. So we've clearly got a lot of work to do. Congress right now is uh, considering reauthorizing NCLB and there will be changes likely emerge. Jonathan and some of his publications has predicted that the uh, NCLB will not be reauthorized until 2009. It may take a year or two. Some are saying, well, they really do have a bipartisan spirit on this issue and they may actually get it done this year. So uh, it's anyone's guess at this point. But um, we will see NCLB continue. It may change a little bit. We may see more growth model uh, uh, systems used for our accountability system. But with our state accountability system, I think we have a real issue here about whether it's serving a purpose and how useful it is. Uh, We implemented it in 1999 as far as passing the law, but it took seven years to implement our category system. And under the category system for the first time in uh, 2006, it was issued, uh, 31% of our schools were on academic watch and 6% were on academic probation. 35% were in the top category exemplary. 13% on commendable progress. There's five categories, and it's very hard to understand what each of these categories mean. And then the legislature has yet to fund technical assistance to help these low-performing schools, nor have they funded the uh, high-achieving grants Mm -hmm. to award high performance. So it's a a system still in limbo, and we really need to do more to help the low-performing schools, but we've really not provided funding to do that. Okay. I'd like to, to follow that up. I've got a million questions, but that is, that's going to have to be the last word. We've run out of time. Uh, I will uh, direct uh, listeners to your website. Please. Uh, what is the address? It is keepceep.indiana.edu. They can sign up for our uh, newsletters, for our policy briefs. They can read about our policy chats. We have one coming up next Thursday. And they can also contact us through the site. All right. Jonathan Plucker and Terry Spradlin, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you very thank you. much. That was a lot of fun. On behalf of... Engineer Catherine Hageman, producer, excuse me, engineer Mike Pashkash, and hosts Mary Catherine Carmichael and Bob Salzberg. I'm Will Murphy. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.